Hi everybody, this is Zen, a certified yoga teacher, vinyasa style, and founder of Nya Zang Yoga, a community that focuses on yoga, wellness, and other activities that help unite body, mind, and spirit. Today, uh, I'm gonna read the next chapter, chapter 8 of the book Learning True Love by Sister Chen Kong. Let's get started. Learning True Love, Sister Chen Kong, Chapter 8, Interbeing. When Thay Nhat Hạnh started the Pioneer Village Development Projects in 1964, many bright young men and women left their positions of responsibility in the Department of Buddhist Youth of the Unified Buddhist Church to join him. These made some of the conservative elders of the Unified Buddhist Church angry at Thay and those of us associated with his work. They even surmised somehow that we had been hired by the communists, or at least that they had sent me to influence Tay. By 1965, our reputation for social development work had become so great among Saigon intellectuals that a number of us thought it might be time to ask the church elders to their, for their support again. Thay agreed, and we went to the Unified Buddhist Church headquarters, prostrated ourselves in front of those who had criticized us, and said, By ourselves, we can have only a few villages, but with your support, we can bring about social change for the whole country. The key persons in the Unified Buddhist Church, Thay Thiet Hoa, Thay Tam Chou, Thay Huyen Quang, and Thay Thiet Minh, agreed to allow us to use the church's name to launch a nationwide appeal for rural development and social change. During this same period of time, Thay Nhat Hạnh published a series of articles in the Buddhist weekly newsletter Thiet Mi, announcing the formation of a youth school of youth for social service, where young people could train to be social workers and when they graduated, be sent to remote areas to serve poor people who comprised nearly 80% of the country's population. The response was great. 1,000 people applied to be trainees. The School of Youth for Social Service office and classrooms were set up in the Tư Nghiêm Pagoda, the, one, the women's dormitory in Huệ Lâm Temple, the monks' dormitory in Chuklam Temple, and the layman's dormitory on the campus of the future Bat Hạnh University. We selected 300 of the 1,000 applicants, purchased an old Renault van, and began to transport students from their various dormitory locations to class every day. It took two hours to pick everyone up and two hours to take them home, but despite the difficulty, we all were all bursting with joy. The teaching staff was unpaid. It was my job to coordinate a committee of 35 students to visit as many households as possible to describe our program and ask for support. It was similar to the way I had raised funds for the people in the Quoc Thanh slum. But this time, in less than a year, more than 3,000 families became sponsors of our work. 
even some poor street vendors. We reported our successes and difficulties to each sponsor, and inspired by our devotion to the work, they became our informal publicists. The School of Youth for Social Service was officially founded in September 1965 as a program of Vanhat University under the auspices of the Unified Buddhist Church. Thay Nhat Hạnh served as the director of the Board of Trustees, and Thay Thanh Vân was executive director. According to the Unified Buddhist Church's constitution, only a monk or a nun could be the head of a church program. Thay Thanh Vân was only 24 years old, but because he had entered the monastic life and been practicing meditation since uh, the age of seven, he was calm and knew how to think deeply. Fourteen of us worked full-time and shared the staff responsibilities. A few dozen others worked part-time. When anyone was unable to fulfill his or her task, I came to help. I loved to see the work go smoothly, so I took some responsibility in almost every area. Everyone regarded me as the commander-in-chief at one meeting. When I sang a traditional Vietnamese love song, people seemed surprised and said, Phuong, you sing too! At the end of 1965, Thầy Thanh Văn, Trịnh and Thầy Liu Phuong found land 10 kilometers from Saigon, and we decided to build an School of Youth for Social Service campus there. Rather than divide the space in the traditional way with separate quarters for nuns, monks, lay women, and lay men, we decided to have one unified, unified campus. Thay Nhat Hạnh designed a small temple of bamboo, mud, and cement with a palm leaf roof, and this building served as our spiritual center where we practiced sitting meditation reciting the precepts and sharing tea. Thay wrote a fundraising letter asking for help to build 40 dormitory rooms, a dining room, a library, and an auditorium. And we went from house to house explaining our aspirations and projects and soliciting contributions for the construction. In July 1966, we moved in. Thay had a room in one corner of the temple. In 1964, two students of Thay Nhat Hạnh, Thay Thanh Tuệ and Thay Tự Mãn, founded La, La, La Boy Press with a grant from Mrs. Ngo Van Hiu. Two cedars, Thu Ha and my sister Thang, were the treasurers, and in less than two years, La Boy printed 12 books by Thay on engaged Buddhism and 20 by other authors. One occasion, Thay Nhat Hạnh proposed that we organize a banquet for the artists who had contributed to La Boy Press. I volunteered to be the cook. My sisters in the Dharma were surprised to discover that I could cook also. I selected dishes that I had seen my mother prepare. 
substituting tofu and gluten for fish and pork. It turned out to be a very successful evening. Everyone loved the food, including the dish called "White Birds Go Back to Their Nest," a large squash filled with delicious soup, and two beaten egg whites. The two birds. The books of La Boy Press were distributed widely throughout the country, and its work was, at that time, legal. When we published books on peace through our Vatnak University Student Union Press, on the other hand, we did so at the risk of going to jail. By 1966, the word peace had become equated with communism, so we had to do this work underground. In 1966-1967. We published four books by Thay Nhat Hanh, Lotus in a Sea of Fire, Hoa Sen trong Biển Lửa, Don't Forget Those Who Suffer, Đừng Quên Xin Đừng Vội Quên, Dialogue, The Key to Peace in Vietnam, Đối Thoại, Cánh Cửa Hòa Bình, and Let Us Pray for the Dove to Come, Chắp Tay Nguyện Cầu Cho Bồ Câu Trạng Hiện. Lotus in a Sea of Fire was a clear assessment of the war, but for the Saigon authorities in 1966, it was communist propaganda. Don't forget those who suffer. Was written as a letter from Thay Nhat Hanh to city dwellers, asking them not to forget the peasants who were suffering so from the war. It was also a report about our work in Quảng Nam for war and flood victims. Written very beautifully to awaken people from forgetfulness. Few printers were willing to print these books. Lotus in the Sea of Fire was printed by a Buddhist on Zalong Street and distributed widely through an informal network. Don't forget those who suffer was printed by Thay Thong Biu's printing house in Quan Âm Temple. This temple had been set up by Thay Quang Duc, the first monk who immolated himself for human rights in 1963. Thay Thong Biu was later exiled by the communist government to a remote town, but he escaped and lived in the jungle in Vietnam until 1992, when he finally returned to Saigon. One day in early September of 1966. I was on my way home from Thay Thong Biu's temple on my motorbike. I had stopped there to pick up three hundred copies of "Don't Forget Those Who Suffer." If I had been driving a car, no one would have paid much attention to me. Wealthy people had private cars, and since they were rarely communist, the authorities never stopped cars to search for guerrillas. But guerrillas did carry grenade grenades on motorbikes, and the police routinely stopped motorbikes. When I drove across Chuang Mingjiang Bridge, a policeman stopped and searched me. He saw the books and suspected they might be communist leaflets. When he asked me that, what they were, I said, "Just some books." 
But when he started leafing through a copy of "Don't Forget Those Who Suffer," I became frightened. I invoked the name of Avalokitesvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion and fearlessness, and regained my serenity. I saw that my only motivation was to wake people up from forgetfulness and help them realize the suffering of the people in the war zone. Even if I was sent to jail, I knew I was doing what was right, and I was ready to accept full responsibility. With that thought, a big smile came over my face. The policeman smiled back and read the first line: "Dear M, do you know?" M is the familiar greeting from an older brother to his younger sister, or from a young man to his beloved, beloved, and it communicates intimacy and kindness. Tai always started difficult essays with sweet beginnings. The policeman read the first sentence aloud and said, "This is a love story, isn't it?" I smiled again, and he handed me the book and said. Okay, you can go. I knew I had barely escaped. I don't know why, but I rarely seem to have problems when my heart is pure with intention to help others. In October, I went to Hue to teach as usual, but this time I intended to obtain signatures from students and teachers for a petition asking the warring parties to find a peaceful solution to the war. Unlike most visits to Hue, this time I did not bring any copies of Lotus in a sea of fire. I carried only a copy of the petition, some school papers, and a, a bag of used toys to distribute to orphan victims of the war, and one beautifully wrapped gift that a friend had asked me to bring to her mother. When I arrived at the Hue airport. I was surprised to see three policemen standing there, obviously waiting for me. They approached and said, "We have orders to search your luggage." Two officers looked through the bag of toys. The petition was among my papers, and while the young officer was looking carefully at every single sheet, I breathed deeply and evoked the name of Avalokitesvara. I said to myself, "Bodhisattva of compassion, we are going to jail. There is no way to escape. We must go without fear." The month before, when I had been caught with a carton of "Don't forget those who suffer," I had been lucky enough to avoid going to prison. But the policeman at the airport in Hue looked stern, even cruel. Still. Invoking the name of Avalokitesvara, I was able to smile serenely at the tense police faces. Suddenly, the young one discovered the petition. I saw his hands shaking as he glanced at me nervously. I returned his glance with a deep, sad smile, and immediately, he put the petition back among the papers already searched. And acted as if he hadn't seen anything. They finished the search, put all the papers aside, and opened my friend's gift for her mother. It was a copy of 
lotus in a sea of fire. Even though my friend's father was the former police chief of Hui, I was arrested on the spot. On the way to the station, the young policeman sat beside the driver and I sat in the back. I knew that if they discovered the petition for peace, I would be sentenced to many years in prison. So I very carefully slipped the petition out of my handbag, folded it five times, put it in my mouth and swallowed it bit by bit. It was the only thing I could do. If I tore it up, they would have seen it, and I knew I would be searched again at the police station. When we arrived, I was charged with possessing a banned book and held without bail. Every day in Hui, my university students went to the Lingguang Temple to ask the head monk to request my release. When he finally agreed to do so, the Hui police responded by transferring me to a jail in Saigon, where I was held for another eight days in a small cell, two meters by two and a half meters, with eight other prisoners. There was not even enough room for us to lie down, so I practiced sitting meditation day and night, consciously following each breath and listened to the story of the other prisoners, including two 12-year-old girls who said that they had done nothing wrong. My weeks in jail in Hue and Saigon were important lessons for me. I realized how much I take for granted so many wonderful things in my life. For example, in jail, I dreamed of climbing freely and happily onto my motorbike like a bird flying in the air. With my long hair flowing, the cloth of my owl's eye flapping in the breeze, and two giant bags of rice for those in the slums on top of the back wheel, I realized that having a motorbike and being able to ride on it whenever I wanted was one aspect of living in paradise. At meal times, the prisoners received only one. Uh, old rice and rotten salted fish. I dreamed of hot, tender white rice and boiled vegetables, dipped in soy sauce with a few drops of fragrant lemon, and slices of green and red peppers. Eating had been something I did not. Uh, I did only to be of some use to others, but now I realized that if given a chance to go home. I would eat very mindfully, enjoying each taste of tender rice and every morsel of delicious vegetables. One day, when I received a fresh orange from one of the male prisoners who said that he had admired me when I was a student in the Faculty of Science, I vowed to remember the material and moral needs of prisoners. One day in jail is longer than one thousand years in freedom. In 1978, I started an underground project to send financial aid to political prisoners and their families. Later, in 1982, I helped persuade Amnesty International to send food to prisoners. 
when I had been in jail in Saigon for a week, the head of the National Police, Colonel Nguyen Ngoc Luan, called me into his office and informed me that I would be released thanks to the intervention of Dr. Tiet, a relative of a friend of mine who knew the colonel. I begged Colonel Luan to reconsider the case of the two 12-year-old girls who had told me that they had not done anything wrong, that they had just happened to be around when the authorities arrested two guerrillas. Jail was not a healthy environment for children. Instead of releasing them, Colonel Luan ordered the guards to be stricter because the prisoners had obviously been talking to each other, and the rules specifically forbade that. The other prisoners thought I had denounced them in order to be released. I realized that being Kshiti Barha, each treasure Bodhisattva who vows to have those in hell until hell is empty must be terribly difficult. I'd only wanted to help those two girls, but because of my action, the situation worsened. Later, from 1984 to 1988, when my beloved sister in the Dharma, Thich Nhu Chi Hai, was jailed by the communists, she practiced much better than I had. She told me that she had received a copy of Thay's book, A Guide to Walking Meditation, one week before being arrested. And in jail, she practiced walking five kilometers every day in mindfulness in a cell of four square meters. When she was put into a bigger cell, she gave Dharma talks to the other women prisoners. She even offered the five precepts to prisoners in an informal ceremony. To me, she was a real earth treasure bodhisattva. I know there are many Kshiti Gaba monks and nuns in the jails of Vietnam today. The days from 1964 to 1968 were the busiest of my life. I was responsible for many lab workshops in Saigon University. I was also a full-time student in the Bachelor of Buddhist Studies program at Vat Hai Buddhist University and president of the student union there, organizing the book publishing, special seminars, and a group of students who collected food, clothing, and cooking utensils to send to the poor people of Guangnam and surrounding areas. I was head of the extension department of the School of Youth for Social Service, coordinating volunteers to collect donations from families around Saigon and to correspond with the many School of Youth for Social Service supporters throughout the country each month. I worked in the slums of Saigon and into pioneer villages. As a lecturer in botany at Hue University, 1,000 kilometers from Saigon. I had to fly every two months for four days of teaching and six days of bringing food and supplies to war victims in remote areas of Guangnam, 
lại sơn khương and đức đức. Although I was doing so many things, I never felt tired. The need in Vietnam was great and many friends shared and supported my work. I was not unique. Vietnamese and others around the world were also shouldering great responsibilities to try to help alleviate the suffering in Vietnam. But many of them became exhausted. Today we called it burnout. I never felt that way. I continued to sing and arrange flowers in my room, trying to keep my spirit fresh and happy. One day, a cedar friend who had been active for two years before getting married and having children came to visit. And she was amazed by, at my joyful attitude. What kind of fuel do you take to be so steady, faithful, and full of joy on this arduous path? She asked. At her question, I looked back at all my work and was su- surprised. Two, that I was able to take on so many responsibilities with ease. Only later did I realize that uh, my fuel was living simply and practicing one day of mindfulness each week. I have always lived like a nun, eating simple foods, owning just a few changes of clothes, wearing no cosmetics, and having no money of my own in the bank. I even donated the diamond necklace and diamond bracelets my parents gave me to a project for the poor. From the age of 20, I knew that someday I would shave my head and join an order order of Buddhist nuns. In 1960, Thầy Thanh Tú, Thầy Chí Quảng and Thầy Nhất Hạnh all advised me to wait before being ordained. But in 1963, Thầy Chí Quảng encouraged me to become a nun. I asked Thầy Nhất Hạnh, and he said that the precepts for monks and nuns formulated 2,500 years ago needed to be renewed. He showed me 40 new precepts he had written that he felt carried the deepest teachings of the Buddha and would be fit for our time. He said he would tell me when he thought was the best time for me to shave my head and become a nun. But for now, he invited six of us, the leaders of the School of Youth for Social Services, to receive the 14 precepts in a formal ceremony. On the 5th of February in 1966, a full moon day, Thay Nhat Hạnh ordained the first six members of the Tiếp Hiệt Order, the Order of Interbeing. This order was created by Thay to help bring Buddhism directly into the arena of social concerns during a time when the war was escalating and the teachings of the Buddha were most sorely needed. Thay proposed that the order be composed of monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen, and said that the six of us first ordained were free to choose whether we preferred to live and practice as formal monastics 
or as lay persons. We three women choose to live celibate lives like nuns. Although we didn't shave our heads, why the three men chose to marry and practice as lay Buddhists. Among the three women was Nyetchi Mai, who immolated herself for peace just a year later. It was a wonderful celebration. Each of us was given a lamp with a handmade sheet on which Tai had calligraphed Lamp of the World, Lamp of the Full Moon, Lamp of Wisdom, etc. In old style Chinese, during the initiation, ini, initiation, initiation ceremony, we six ordinaries vowed to study, practice, and observe the fourteen precepts of the order of interbeing. Since that day, I have felt that these precepts are my primary teacher, especially when I have been under stress. And do not know the best way to act. These are the fourteen precepts. First, do not be idolatrous about or bow to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. Buddhist systems of thought are guiding means; they are not absolute truth. Second, do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bow to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life, and to observe reality in yourself, and in the world at all times. Third, do not force others, including children, by any means whatsoever, to adopt your views, whether by authority, threat, money, propaganda, or even education. However, through compassionate dialogue, help others renounce fanaticism and narrowness. Fourth, do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering, including personal contact, images, and sound. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. Fifth. Do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Do not take as the aim of your life fame, profit, wealth, or sensual pleasure. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. Sixth, do not maintain anger or hatred. Learn to penetrate and transform them when there are still seeds in your consciousness. As soon as they arise, turn your attention to your breath, in order to see and understand the nature of your anger and hatred, and the nature of the persons who have caused your anger and hatred. 
Seventh, do not lose yourself in dispersion and in your surroundings. Practice mindful breathing to come back to what is happening in the present moment. Be in touch with what is wondrous, refreshing, and healing both inside and around you. Plant seeds of joy, peace, and understanding on yourself in order to facilitate the work of transformation in the depths of your consciousness. Eighth, do not utter words that can create discord or cause the community to break. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. Ninth, do not say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people. Do not utter words that can cause division or hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things of which you are not sure. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. Tenth, do not use the Buddhist community for personal gain or profit or transform your community into a political party. A religious community, however, should take a clear stand against oppression and injustice and should strive to change the situation without engaging in partisan conflicts. Eleventh, do not live with a vocation that is harmful to humans and nature. Do not invest in companies that derive others of their chance to live. Select a vocation that helps realize your idea of compassion. Twelve, do not kill. Do not let others kill. Find whatever means possible to protect lives and prevent war. Thirteenth, possess nothing that should belong to others. Respect the property of others but prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. Fourteenth, do not mistreat your body. Learn to handle it with respect. Preserve vital energies, sexual, breath, spirit, for the realization of the way. Be fully aware of the responsibility of bringing new lives into the world. Meditate on the world into which you are bringing new beings. The conditions requested by Thay Nhat Hạnh to those of us who formerly ordained with him were to practice at least 60 days of mindfulness a year and to practice with a community of friends. Even though I continued to be extremely busy, I renewed myself every week with a day of mindfulness at our School of Youth for Social Service Temple. From Saturday noon until Sunday noon, I would always come laden down with worries about urgent responsibilities, but after a short while, I could slowly calm myself and stop even the most anxious thoughts. I tried to dwell mindfully on every act, beginning with putting my overnight bag in my room, 
boiling some water for washing and putting on my meditation clothes. Then I practiced walking meditation alone in the woods, picking wildflowers and bamboo branches for arrangements for the meditation hall. After three hours of dwelling steadily in each mindful act and releasing all my worries, I began to feel renewed and we six members of the order gathered to recite the precepts and chant the Heart Sutra together. Then we shared tea and our experiences of the past week, ate dinner silently together, and practiced sitting meditation before bed. We meditated together again in the early morning during individual time before and after evening meditation and the next day I sometimes had to resume my urgent work alone in my room but I always did it in a mindful way. One day Nhat Chi Mai said to me we are such a new order that the Buddhist church does not accept us as nuns. I comforted her by saying don't worry We don't need their acceptance. We were ordained by Thay because we wanted to follow the 14 precepts. Others can think of us as laypersons, nuns or whatever the one. What is important is that we practice the precepts as guidelines lighting our path of service and helping us transform our negative tendencies like fanaticism, narrow-mindedness, anger and hatred. In fact, as we continued to practice sincerely, many of the high monks came to appreciate us. Although they didn't call us nuns, they treated us with equal respect. Today, thousands of friends in Europe, North America, Australia and Asia have come to know and practice these 14 precepts although most have not had the opportunity to receive them formally from Thay, I always advise those who wish to practice the precepts to organize a Sangha, a community of friends around them, to recite the precepts every month and share the experiences of living the precepts. If they do this, already they are members of the extended community of the Order of Interbeing.